Definitions are important because it gives you a starting point. Definitions direct us and they guide us. Um, it directs us how to live and it also guides us on how to view things. And today in the world that we live in, definitions are, are getting blurry is, is, is what's taking place today. And sin has blurred those definitions. When, when is the unborn in a mother's womb considered a child is a definition that is being debated in courts. And you think we have the definition of marriage that's being re-looked at and redefined as well as what is truth. And I think some of these things can find its answer in defining one of the most important questions is what is love? What is we're about to deal with it today. The word love is the most important word in my mind in the human language, and it's hard for us to define. People say, I love my family, I love my wife, I love my job, I love my church, I mean, I love my dog. Um, I love your hair, your nails, that song, I love the sweat. But, but sometimes we, we get that definition messed up. I was, I was reading a love letter from a woman to a young man that uh, she broke up with but realizes she still loves him. And she said, dear Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. I was so moved by this. She goes, no one could ever take your place in my heart. So please forgive me. And then she wrote, I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever, Marie. And P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. And so you kind of think to yourself, you're going, okay. Maybe, maybe it's not love that Maria has for Jimmy. There may be another motive that's here. Think of it for a moment. How would you define love? If our definition is wrong, then it affects everything. The definition you believe will affect your relationships with people and with God. So you have to realize how important it is to define what this means. I have a lot of books Tens of thousands of books in my library, and it's amazing to me that love is talked about but hardly defined. Because once you say love is, you've just committed yourself. And one of the great things is this. The Bible does it by saying love is because the Bible can, because it's God's word. So it's able to say love is. So when you ask the question, what is love, there's nothing bigger than this phrase. Listen to this. God is love. 1 John 4.8. I mean, you can't be as simple as that. It's one of the greatest descriptions of love and of God when you read the scriptures. Because what you realize is this. Just listen carefully to this for a moment. God does not love us because we're good. God loves us because he is good. That, that, means, that means because of who he is. No matter what you've done, no matter what your past has been, Ricardo was alluding to that about when he was talking about you don't get clean and come to the shower. We remind you, you don't get good and come to God. You come to God and he makes you good. That's the miracle of the gospel. I, I found a story that just intrigued me. I couldn't find when, how, how many years ago this took place, but a lady in Spain just made the news, I think it was just some months ago, when she chose a unique way to test her husband's love. And with the help of a friend, she manipulated her own kidnapping and sent a ransom note to her husband. And when the police discovered the kidnapping was a hoax, they asked the lady, why did you do it? And this is what she told the authorities. I wanted to find out 
how much my husband loved me and what he would actually do for me, knowing that I was kidnapped and brought in, which wasn't even true. But here's what's amazing. She wasn't disappointed because he was willing to do all that. But I have to tell you this. When I think about what God went through for us, you will never be disappointed of the love that God has shown for us. Because God is love, which is completely true, the Bible then takes that John 3, 16, that 1 John 4, 8, but then it goes even deeper. And that's what I want to talk to because the Bible doesn't disappoint. It goes, it takes that love and goes deep. And I want to read to you what is considered one of the greatest chapters of the entire Bible. And it's 1 Corinthians 13. But the God saw love so important that he would dedicate an entire chapter of the Bible to defining what love is. So let me read it to you today. This is what it says. I want to read all the 13 verses of, of 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what it says. If I speak the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom of all mysteries and of all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I'm nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy and it doesn't boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others and it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. I love verse 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And when there is not, where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. And then Paul says this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away the childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection is in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. But let, let, me, let me pause, because if I was writing this, I would have stopped. The, the, to me, the crescendo of this would have been, love never fails. But all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul gives us this incredible reminder and pauses for a moment and says these words. He says, um, he goes, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, and reasoned like a child. Why was Paul putting just that, that, that caveat in, these, in this passage when he, when he could have just ended with love never fails, we throw our hands up, Ricardo comes and sings a song, and it's all good. But, but all of a sudden, he just says, love never fails. But he goes, let me remind you. He says, I want you to put away your childhood. I want you to put away, in a sense, your high school years. Put aside your letter jacket and, 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 and the way you've acted in all these relationships, whether in college or everything. He says, what I need you to do is to define love the right way. I don't want you to get stuck 
in thinking what real love is. Don't think how you used to think, but I want you to think bigger than you've ever thought. Paul, in a sense, is going, I want you to begin to think of love in a grown-up way. I want you to think of it in a mature way. I want you to think of it in a 1 Corinthians 13 way, because this is a big deal. The great, the great writer from the 15th century, Thomas Akempis, says it best when he says these words. He says, whoever loves much does much. Because that's really what love is. Because love does something before it would feel something at times. This, this is going to be important. Because what we think is love is a feeling where Paul is defined. That's, that's the childish way. Where Paul goes, no, 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 no. Love does even before it feels. Love will be obedient even before it senses. Or let me put it to you this way. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is more of a verb than it is even a noun. Because we confuse love with like. Like is the emotion. Love is the action. Love is the decision before it's the feeling. See, the reason why that's so true is because if the Bible commands us to love, God knows he can't command feeling, but he can command obedience. He can command action from us. Jesus couldn't command us to feel, but that's why we're called to act. We want feeling because we want to like what we love. But the Christian way, the godly way is this. Biblically, you can love what you don't even like. That's what's amazing. Okay, let me explain it to you this way. I, I, let, me, let me tell you about some marital counseling situations that I've been in. I've, I've been in some marital counseling that have lost sight of this, that, they have, that they've walked in childish thinking with feeling over action. I had one husband tell me, he says, I don't love my wife anymore. And I don't, I don't see her as nothing but a person that I live with and we're just in the same house. I said, okay. So the Bible says, husbands love your wives. He said, well, I don't even see her as my wife. She's just someone I live with. I said, okay, that's fine. The Bible, Jesus also said, love your neighbor. So you lose because now she's your neighbor and, you, and now you have to love. And then he thought he had me. Then he goes, then he said this, well, I hate her. I said, great. Jesus said, love your enemies. So either way, you can't win. Because if it was a feeling, if you go, so here's what it says. Now, this is where you're going to get mad at me. Listen, which means this, you can't leave a marriage because you don't love someone. It means that God is wanting to do something in your heart, whether it's your spouse or whether you want to call them your neighbor or your enemies. Jesus said, I can teach you to love with God's help today. Biblical love starts with a decision before it even turns into an emotion. You have to decide that. So thank God we just saved some marriages today. <laughs> do then comes feel. It means I don't feel like joining a connect group. We, we, we don't, none of us feel like doing anything. But it's not, it's not based on feel or tithing or showing up at church or serving. See, there's something interesting about that great verse that, you, that we sang in song today, that fantastic verse. But if you could just take the two of them, John 3.16, and connect it to what John writes later on, a few years later, in his epistle, in his letter called 1 John. 
And he wrote in 1 John 3, look at those two, because what he does is something absolutely astounding. John 3, 16 and 1 John 3, 16. You know John 3, 16. Read it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's John 3, 16. But if you read the counterpart, it is, this is God's love, John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16 is since God loves us, this is our response. Here's what it says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we, here comes the responsibility, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. See, what he was saying was that God's love to you must now come through you. So you received it, but now, if you've received God's love, now, we're not, we're not a cul-de-sac, we're not a pond, we're a river. It comes to us so it can come through us. We have been saved to do something. We've been saved to love God and to love people. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to a man that asked him the greatest commandment, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first great commandment. And Jesus then said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what's amazing? In all my studies of religions, of, of, of working through a number of different religions, it, other than Christianity and Judaism, I have not found one other religion that says you are to love God. Obey God, yes. But, but the pursuit to love with all your mind, heart, and soul now, folks, let me just pause here for a second because something happens here. When it comes to salvation, it's interesting. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your what? That God has raised him from the dead. You will be. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't say believe with all of your heart. It says believe. It's almost like God goes, listen, I know that there's going to be hurdles and struggles when you, when you take that first moment to say, I believe in God. But after that, this is what's important. When it deals with loving God, he says, I need all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul to do this. Because I can't let anything else get in the way here. See, the danger to me, I'm going to say this now. Here's the part. The dangers is to have believers in the house, but not lovers in the house. Or let me put it to you this way. I'm concerned we can have a lot of believers in God, but not a lovers of God. And nothing creates a religion more than the ones that know the rules and know the stuff, but are not in love with Jesus today. Folks, nothing, nothing to me could be more harmful and to live with my wife, to live with Cindy, and just to know all the rules about marriage, but never be in love with her. That's why to, to, to know all the rules about something doesn't turn into praise and worship. It turns into, it turns into a legalism that just does all the stuff and just checks all the boxes. But when you're in love with God, it's not a problem to lift your hands, to sing, and to start to worship God. See, that's what happens. See, this is why God tells us how important it is to love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body. And when the, we don't do this as a church, then you know what it becomes? It's like a gathering of, 
of, of 21st century teenagers that only come out of their room when they want something. We only come to church when we want something. Instead of saying, I don't lock myself away, I come out of my room to say, God, you have been good. God, you have provided. God, I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and body. I'm not just sitting in a room going, oh, I need something. Can I have money? Can I have this? Can I have a job? Can I have this thing? Can I have some more freedom? Can I have some more liberty? Let me tell you something. God doesn't have to do one more thing for me, and that's enough for me to lift my hands and say, God is worthy. God is who he is and thanking God for what he has done. That's why the Bible tells us he starts off the whole love chapter and says this, without love, you don't have diminished effectiveness, but, you, but, your, but your effectiveness as a church is eliminated if we don't have love in this place. He says you can talk in tongues, you can prophesy, you can, you can have knowledge and you can have faith, you can give your money. And in fact, he says you can be burned as a martyr and give your life. But if there's not love, he said it becomes a religion. But when there is love, it's a relationship that begins to transcend Sundays at 10 o'clock. Because God is love. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, you can remove the word love and put God in its place. God is patient. God is kind. God never fails. You can do that. But the challenge is, can you substitute your name in there? I've done that before and it was horrible. I have put my name in there and looked at it and it was, and it really, it was, I didn't, I didn't pass the test. Tim is patient. That failed. Tim is kind occasionally. Tim does not envy. Tim does not boast. Tim is not proud. How many, how many are with me? You're failing this test pretty quick here. Tim, Tim, Tim is not self-seeking. Tim is not easily angered, including the Lincoln Tunnel. Tim keeps no records of wrongs. Tim does not delight in evil, rejoices in the truth. I think I got that one. Tim always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Tim never fails. That's a failure right there. And now you look at this and you try to think to yourself, wow, that's the challenge. See, here's, I want to say something that can seem a little bit, a little bit controversial, but this is, this is what I see I think is so important. I heard somebody say, the great... Dr. Adrian Rogers from Tennessee said it like this from Memphis. He says, when you teach people their rights, you can have a revolution. But when you teach people their responsibilities, you can have a revival. And we have, re we have responsibilities right here that I think are so important. And I want to just walk you through what the Apostle Paul says in these next few moments. And Go with me as we just begin to take each one of these. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I want you to walk with me thinking and always realizing that this is where God has asked us. And when you read this, it's amazing. When you read this chapter on love, there's no butterflies. There's no feeling in your stomach. There's nothing here that's physical. There's nothing sensual. It's not emotional. It is obedience. It's doing before you're feeling. But if we act with the way God wants us to act with God's help, we begin to find out that God helps us to begin in a world that seems to be growing cold in love when we watch people start to get on fire with love for God and for each other. So let me just walk you through this just for a few moments here. First is this. It says love is patient. Patience, in my mind, patience waits. Patience defers. Patience puts 
others first. Patience is a word that is associated with waiting. You're not hurrying people up with, and this is where I failed this one. You're not hurrying people up with tapping feet and breathe. You, you know what it's like. <sighs> right there, you fail the patience test. It's just, it's like, okay, we're leaving shortly. <sighs> My natural instinct is this, is to believe that you should be where I am right now. That's what, that's, that's the battle of patience here. Patience says, I will wait for you to get it and get there instead of me going, come on, hurry it up. Let's get this right. That's why, let me say something to you that I think is so important today. I wanna to speak to all single people and those that may be in a relationship, but you're not married. So I'm speaking to all non-married people. In fact, let me just do this. Online and prayer. If you're not married, would you raise your hand? Hold it up high. Wow. Okay, put your hands down. This is, some of you are looking around going, oh, I didn't know he was single. Okay, just, let's just, just all relax, okay? Let's just all relax for a moment here. The, let, me, let me say this to you today. It's one of the first questions I ask in any relationship. Because in a relationship, and let me, let me be a little bit frank with you. I want to be just clear. I'm not trying to be crass, but I'm trying to be clear. Biblically speaking, love, what love is, love is patient. Which means if you're in a relationship that God's, God says that a sexual part of a relationship has to be in the boundaries of the covenant of marriage. Okay? Thank you for the one hand clap. Let me be clear. I want to be clear. It's not made outside the boundaries of commitment and marriage. God made that part of the relation, the physical side of a relationship for marriage and covenant and commitment. Now listen to me carefully. And I, I, I hope I bust up some relationships right now. I hope so. I, I'm, I'm, I've been waiting for point number one for a while here. I'm telling you that right now. So here it comes. Listen to me. First question I ask when anybody comes, even for marital, premarital pre counseling is this, is have, have, is your relationship pure? And here's, it's, and it's amazing. My heart drops every time when I watch the hedge. And here's what I say. Keep this in mind. The Bible says love is patient. So I don't care if he said, if you love me, then we should. And this is where I look at the lady and I just go, don't believe that. I said, be real careful. So listen to me. So as, you're, so as you're letting go of the hand of your boyfriend right now, listen to me real carefully right now. Because I want to say this real clear. Love is patient and is willing to wait for it to be done the right way. with anybody else this we go back to the definition not your definition God's definition that says before 
that part happens in our relationship, we have to establish that we're in love first and love is patient. And since it's patient, it will wait for it to be done the right way. So some of you right now are going, get, get ready, man. You're about to get a jilt in this place for her to go, mm, I'm not even going to go there. But let me just say this, because it's coming to a point to say, this is what God says for us to do, not what we want. That we become patient in what's important, not trying to get people to be on our schedule, on our timeline. Folks, let me just say this. And the most patient person in the world is God himself. God is so patient with us, patient with our spiritual growth, patient with, uh, with our obedience. Oh my goodness, I am so grateful God is patient. Listen to what 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What he's doing is patience means I'm giving space, margin to change. I'm giving people the opportunity. God's not sitting there exhaling and tapping his foot going, why aren't they getting it? God is so patient with you that are watching online, those that are watching from South Africa and those that are watching from Puerto Rico, those that are watching from Barbados. God is patient with you. He's patient with me. And that's the miracle of God. I was reading the story of one of the biggest atheists in over the centuries. He was called the great agnostic. Um, and then eventually the great atheist was Robert Ingersoll from the last century. His lectures on the immor immortality of man, especially at Harvard, is what he is known for. He used to do something in all of his lectures that was, that was, was almost sacrilegious. He would open up his pocket watch and put it on the lectern, and this is what he would say. I will give God five minutes to strike me dead for all the things that I've said to disprove him. And he'd put his watch there, and this uncomfortable silence would fill the lecture hall as Ingersoll would wait there and count off each minute. And when five minutes would hit, Ingersoll would shut his watch and he would say, God did not retaliate because God does not exist. And one day, sitting in one of those lectures was an evangelist named Theodore Parker. And he was asked about Ingersoll's tactics and Ingersoll's circus. And I want you to see on the screen what his response was. It's classic. He goes, and did the gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of the eternal gods in five minutes. Thank God he's patient. Thank God he's patient with you. He's patient with me. Can I just tell you today, those that have been watching, those that are here today, folks, I'm just telling you, God is bigger than your threats. I'm done with you. I'm tired. And God is up. God's not going, oh, I can't believe. God is patience. Thank God for his patience today. And then the apostle Paul says, love is kind. 
Because it starts, when you think about it, we could put God's name in there. God is patient. God is kind. It's our challenge to look at these. D.L. Moody said one of the hardest things for God to do is to make someone kind. And let me tell you what, what I say. Kindness is a powerful tool. Because kindness, here's what I want you to get. Kindness is love's response to somebody who's weak. What do you you mean, Pastor Tim? When someone is weak, they can either be manipulated, exploited, or kindness shown to them. It's when kindness is shown, it's shown to a person at a disadvantage that you can exploit or control, or you can show kindness. I've watched it. I've watched it. I've been on both sides of it. Weakness in from. From, from, a power posi- from a power position. I've watched it all the way down from weakness when you have, don't have enough finances and you're asking someone, whether it's a bank or a relative, you're in a vulnerable place and someone can exploit and they can manipulate and control your weakness or they can extend kindness at that point. Folks, it is simple as this. You may be working as a cashier or a TSA checkpoint. I've watched it that even a uniform can exploit or even try to control because of a moment that now I have to listen to you because I'm watching you with my, with, with my milk in your hand, now deciding how the pace you're going to go. Now you're in charge. You're in charge at that point. You're in charge if you're a TSA checkpoint person. You're in charge of my future if I'm going to get on that plane or not. You're in charge whether you work at a bank or whether you're a relative and somebody wants to borrow something from a lawnmower to finances. And this is where kindness shows up. It's, the, it's, it's what is shown to someone in a weaker position. Someone said it like this. When we're kind, we put our strength, abilities, and resources on loan to someone who lacks them. Kindness is that decision. It's the decision to do for others what they cannot do in the moment for themselves. Kindness is love's response to someone in a weak place. That's why, folks, if there's anybody that can ever exploit and manipulate, it could be God himself, but not only thank God that he's kind, but that God is patient, but thank you, Jesus, that God is kind. Think about this. Psalm 103 says, just as a parent, parents are kind to their children, the Lord is kind to all who worship him because he knows. Here's the, here's, here's the weak spot of us. We're just made of dust. God could exploit. God can manipulate. But he shows kindness to us. Listen to Psalm 145, 17. Our Lord, everything you do is kind and thoughtful. God uses kindness to move us because we Because we can and we won't start moving on our own. But God extends his kindness even in our weakest moments. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Listen to this church. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? He takes both of those not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's so powerful that God's kindness moves us towards him that God begins to say listen when you don't have the power and you don't have what you need God goes my own power steps in when you're at a disadvantage 
And you will eventually know that the only one that has got you through this is God himself. Only God. And what it does, it moves us. You're going, how did this happen? How did this take place? And slowly, because God is patient, God can watch even though it's baby steps when he shows kindness to your family, kindness to your health, kindness to your children, kindness on your job, kindness through the pandemic. And all of a sudden it may be baby steps that you're moving closer and closer to God, but God is patient and thank God he's patient because his kindness will draw you closer and closer and closer to him. That's what makes it amazing. Now let me just get to this other part, because I want to group three of them together. He also says, love does not envy, it doesn't boast, and love is not proud. Paul groups these three words together, envy, boasting, and pride, because they're such destructive words. It's like a trio that brings, that brings relationships to a toxic place. Those words, envy, boasting, pride. And those words usually show up when someone is doing better than you. That's when it shows up. One of our favorite speakers here every Tuesday, on Tuesdays once a month is Dr. R.T. Kendall. And he told me just a few months ago, he says, I'm going to give you the definition of a true, of a true friend. I said, okay, R.T., tell me what it is. And this is what he said. He said, look at Romans 12, 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, this is what he said. He said, it's much easier to weep with people than it is to rejoice with them. He says, and that's when you know you're a true friend. Because when somebody's hurting, you can go, we're there. Let's pray. But when someone gets blessed and sometimes gets blessed more than you, ooh, Jesus. He goes, that's when you know. That's the test. When those are blessed and succeed, he says, can you rejoice with someone else's success and blessing when you maybe even wanted the same thing? And instead, he said, and what this does, it's this pride, envy, and boasting in us that wants to either shut our mouth and just go, mm, mm-hmm, mm, mm. that's it. Or it's pride and envy that that will somehow try, get, listen to this, because I've done this, that will listen to their story of success and you want to trumpet with one of your stories. Of, and don't pretend you didn't do that before. I caught a fish like this. Oh, well, let me tell you about the shark I caught. And so all of a sudden, you want to tell your bigger story. Hey, God has blessed me. I'm going to get, get a chance to go overseas to study for, for my college. Oh, let me tell you, I did the same thing. And I went, on a, I went on all over Europe. They sent me around the world and to the moon. And all of a sudden, everything is trying to try. Instead of, here it comes. I want to help you. Instead of keeping your mouth shut and just going, hallelujah. Thank God for that. Keep your mouth shut. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We know how to weep, but God, I, God, I want God to help us to rejoice with those that are absolutely blessed. Oh my goodness. If God is love and God doesn't boast, he doesn't have to. God knows already who he is. 
He doesn't have to say, I'm God. All he does. That's why when you look at creation all around you, whether it's a tree in Central Park or the sun that's up in the sky, look at me, folks. It's amazing that God never had a put on any of his creation made by God. Never have to. Because what God said was, I don't have to boast about it. All you've got to do is look and it's going to end up coming right back at me every single time. God is the one in charge. I, I, I have to tell you, let's, let's listen. We're all being honest today. I'm going to tell you a really horrible boasting moment in my life. I was thinking about this as um, I don't even know where, where it came from, but I was, I remember with my son telling my, my firstborn Christian that, hey, listen, if you're going to play baseball, I'll coach you. And, and you have this hope for your kids. Your hope is you will play for the Yankees or you're going into the ministry. If you go into the ministry, hallelujah. And if you play for the Yankees, you'll support me in the ministry. It's going to be one of those two things. And I remember taking him to his first T, no, I think he, it was the next one after T-ball, so it was coach pitch. So the coach pitch is so you're not hitting off a T. And I, it was, so you, in order to do this, when you're trying to work with like eight-year-olds, you need all the help you can get. So I, this, I, had, I had one dad that only volunteered. And so he came and he just goes, hey, can I help you with all that? I said, listen, I said, you can help me. Go stand over there, I said, I know what I'm doing. I said, in high school, I batted 400. I was a great high school player. Stand against the fence, and after I give them my great knowledge, I said, then you can kind of work with them a little bit, but I was in high school. I played ball in high school, and so um, just, just listen, just stand over there at the fence. And he did. He just waited against the fence, and I would, I would work, you know, my expertise with kids, and we would talk about hitting and everything. I said, okay, go over there, talk to Mr. Brian. Okay, go over there, but just remember, I taught you. So I would send them over there. So we're walking out. My son and his son became friends. Um, he was the, the father. His Brian was, I don't know, a few feet behind me, but we're walking, and I hear my kids talking. And so Brian's son goes... Um, my dad played for the Cincinnati Reds and played for the San Francisco Giants. He's been playing for 15 years in Major League Baseball. And so, he was a, a two-sport All-American at Stanford. The Yankees drafted him to be their catcher. He, be, he was the quarterback and the catcher for Stanford he took over after John Elway, who played for the Denver Broncos, was done. He became the quarterback at Stanford and caught. And I told him to stand against the fence because I played high school baseball. I couldn't even look at him. I just kept walking and going, Lord, just let him disappear. Let him just, let something, no one, no one told me who he is. I took a two-sport All-American from Stanford and told him about my expertise in high school. Are you out of your mind, Delina? Are you out of your mind? And he stood there 
with humility and, and undid with such gentleness everything I taught them, undid everything. We love Coach Tim, but, but this is the way, just so kindly just undid everything I did. And, and that's why we won like the city championship with, not from me, but from him. And I have to tell you, as our musicians come, I have to tell you this. I see God just standing there going, I'll wait. While you're sitting in those seats boasting of your 400 average in high school. I got this marriage. I'm doing. And God, God who's made heaven and earth standing there. And instead of God showing up is, hey, look at me. Look what he just stands there. Because of his, listen, because he doesn't boast, he's not prideful, he doesn't speak from his, from his own, he just waits because he's patient and because God is kind and he's going, they're going to get it one day. They're going to realize that your high school, your high school knowledge, your college knowledge, your master's degree, your doctorate, and your successes, it can't fix your marriage. It can't begin to take care of cancer. It can't begin to fix a son or a daughter that has just gone off the rails. At some point, you're going to have to realize that there is a God that's waiting for you that is able to do what you can't do for yourself and God is just waiting there for us it's C.S. Lewis said it like this he goes God will take us any way he can get us he said and God doesn't mind if we call on him when we're down and out just as long as we call on him in the end and look at this this is the part I love he is not proud get, get, get your phones up. you got to take a picture of this this is too good look at this he's not proud God is not proud I love this part he will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. And when I read that part, I'm going, God, how many times have I preferred something else over you? And then you finally get to that song that Ricardo led us in, that there's nothing, there is nothing, and you sang it today, that compares to him. And he's waiting, he's waiting on a fence. He's just going, I'm patient. I'm kind. I, I, I'm willing. I'm willing to come when you call me. On Wednesday, I got calls from all over the country checking on us because here in New York City, if you're watching online, you probably saw it on the news. We in New York thought we were heading into the apocalypse. How many thoughts? <laughs> it was going like... And let me just tell you something. The whole city looked like Mars. Like the red planet. And I've never in my life, there were so many people going, what fence is God standing on? Because we want him on with us right now. Because we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going on. And it's amazing talking to people that are non-Christians. But if that's what it takes for people to turn to God, God is kind. God is patient and he's willing just to wait on us and willing for us to call at that very point to go, God, I need you. God, I need your help right now. Whether it's a catastrophe or a terminal illness that'll make you call for him. He's, 
He's willing to wait. He's not going to sit there going, well, why didn't you call on me when you're in church? Why didn't you call on me when, when, when I did this for you? Why didn't you? God is willing to wait. It's his divine patience. It's his divine humility. It's God is not proud. God doesn't boast. But he waits for us. When you took 20 years to try to find something else to satisfy you. I took a, a pastor, lived in Detroit for 28 years, almost 30 years. It was probably one of the most surreal things I've ever experienced. It was a Sunday, all the way back in the late 80s. In fact, it was 1987. I took a pastor from a ministry that was connected to us called Victory Outreach. Sonny Argonzoni was one of the first people that became a Christian when David Wilkerson, our founder, came to New York. It was uh, Nikki Cruz and then Sonny Argonzoni and, and Sonny's still alive doing great things around the world. And I was dropping off one of his pastors at the Detroit Metro Airport. And as soon as I left, I wasn't even home and heard on the radio that this is even before Delta changed it that Northwest Flight 225 crashed right on I-94 in Detroit. I, I wasn't even home. And so your mind goes, was, was my Victory Outreach pastor in there? Was, what, what was going on? What was happening at this point? 255 people killed. 155 people killed on that flight. And it was right on the section of the highway. I drove by. I exited the airport and drove out on I-94 from Detroit Metro Airport. But what's interesting is that there was 156 on the flight. And 156 is still alive today. Her name is Cecilia. Cecilia is a four-year-old, was a four-year-old little girl at that time. The wing flaps were not put down as that pilot took off and they didn't even get 300 feet off the ground when it plummeted. 155 of the 156. And when they found Cecilia, they couldn't even believe. In fact, they said she was probably someone in a car. She couldn't have been on the plane. And this is what they said, how she survived. They said when that plane was going down so fast, that mom knew her only shot was to take her, embrace her. And they said the mom's embrace is what saved four-year-old Cecilia's life. And Cecilia being alive today, some 35 years later, Cecilia alive today, because mom knew where this was going and the arms of a mom embraced that little girl. Look at me for a second, folks. That's exactly what the kindness and the love of God did for every one of us. Knew what was happening and God goes, you're my son. You're my daughter. You're my child. And no matter what happens, God goes, I got you. I love you. I'm for you. I am kind. I am patient. And I will wait because I don't want you going this way. I want you going this way. And God steps in at that very why whether you're watching online whether you're sitting here balcony main floor in the annex let me close with this 
that life is not simply found in the arms of another person. We always, we always think at the end of the movie that if the guy hugs the girl, they live happily ever after. How many know happily ever after is a lot of work? It's a lot of work. But I'm telling you today, when you find yourselves in the arms of God today, the arms of Jesus, it truly is happily ever after for eternity. That's what begins to take place. I had a revelation. I want you to stand with me. I had a revelation. There are six more of these that I've got to do just on 1 Corinthians 13. And we've got like eight, ten minutes, but I had this revelation. I don't have to do them all. I can end and just put them in the book. So I had a revel- I thought if I, if I wrote it, I got to say, and I just felt like, stop here. I don't, you, so I'm not trying to get you to get the book. Well, you can have the book. But it's, it's, it's us just going, let's stop at this moment. Let God embrace your life. Let God change you. Let God do He's been waiting. Why? Because God is patient. Why am I here today? God is kind. What do I feel? It's God standing on the fence, just going like, I've been here the whole time, just waiting for you to call, waiting for you to stop boasting about what you've done on Wall Street and what you've done in this thing and what you've done in Broadway and what you've done in sports, what you've done for the Yankees or the Mets. You may be sitting here today from another country, what you've done in Denmark and Spain and Japan. God goes, when do you finally go? Your 400 average in high school is not going to get you through life. You need help. Call God off the fence and say, come and change me from the inside. I need help today. So let's, let's talk definitions. Let's talk definitions. Because the most important definition you can, you can realize is you have to ask this question, how do you get to heaven? How do you get there? Life after death. It's my job to remind me and to remind us that probably a hundred years from today, you won't be here. It's always the people going, yeah, but I work out. You won't be here. I go to Planet Fitness. And Juice Generation. Okay, drink Juice Generation. Go to Planet Fitness. Yeah, let me help you. You won't be here in 100 years from today. So the question is, where will you be? Where will you be? Because here's what the Bible says. No man can see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. That's not my words. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus who cannot lie. Because if I was to ask you the question, how do you get to heaven? There's probably a hundred different answers in this place. Well, you're a good person. Well, I haven't hurt anybody. Well, I'm, I was confirmed or I'm come from this religion or my parents took me to this place or to this place. Let me, let me help you today. With all the different definitions, those that are watching online, you may be defining it from Barbados or South Africa. You may try to define it from the UK. You may try to define it from Norway, wherever you're watching from, or Finland. And here's what you have to know today. 
The only person that knows how to get to heaven is the one that came from heaven, and that's Jesus himself. So if he said, if he said, not you, because your definition can't count, neither does mine. If he said the only way we get to heaven is you must be born again, then I'm going with his definition on this one. And here's what, he, here's what it means. Just as you had a first birth physically, you need a second birth spiritually. Just as you have a birth date, mine is December 22nd. This December 22nd, I, I will be officially old. I will be 60 years old, December 22nd. So I won't be here, forget 100 years. I'm just, it's like, Elder Vicky, it's like 20 years. Who knows? But it doesn't matter because I know where I'm going. When, when all of a sudden God says it's done, I know where I'm going. But do you today, if you walk outside these doors, can you say before you leave this place, I know I'm going to heaven today. But Pastor Tim, but how do I become born again? How do I become born again? I'm so happy you asked. It's as simple as ABC. It's A, admitting that we're sinners. A, admitting that all of us are broken on the inside. None of us were born with, 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 as a floor model, like put on the put out outside and going, no assembly required. Can I just tell you, the moment we're born, a lot of assembly required. And the only one that can put us back together is God himself. We all have a condition, it's called sin. We can't fix it by more promises. You can't fix it by a prescription. You can't fix it by a program. It's an internal brokenness that can only be fixed from heaven. It can only be fixed by God. How does that happen, Pastor Tim? That's the B word. Believe. Believe that God sent his son 2,000 years ago to fix my brokenness, to fix my sinful condition. 2,000 years ago, God would send his own son who would become my sin bearer to pay for my sins. He would die the death I was supposed to die, live the life I couldn't live, and gave me a reward I don't even deserve. Think of it for just a moment. Because if you're sitting here today and going like, you just have to be a good person to get to heaven. Okay, okay. Keep, that, keep that logic for a moment. Here's my, here's my response. Then, then God sending his son to die on the cross is the worst case of child abuse in human history. Why would God say, come Jesus, die on the cross, resurrect, but I'm going to tell them to be good to get to heaven? It's impossible. God's a good father. God is patient. God is kind. And finally, C, A, admit, B, believe, C, confess Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? You're in charge of my life now. What does that mean? It's the difference between a religion and a relationship. Religion says, come in a building, come in a house of worship, a mosque, a synagogue, a cathedral, a church. Come in for two hours. Let me talk to you. But here's the good news. God didn't send his son 2,000 years ago to die on a cross, resurrect, to get you to sit in a chair for two hours on a Sunday. God came not so you can get to church. God sent his son so you can get to heaven forever. That's why God came. And that can happen right now. If you're here today, watching online, annex this building, would you just close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment? It's the most important question anybody could ever ask you. It's the question of have you been born again? Everything can change in this point. This is the Cecilia moment when the arms of God wrap around you. It says it doesn't matter what happens to this world. It doesn't matter whether the sky turns red or the sky turns black. It's God's arms around you at this point. Balcony, 
main floor, if you're here today, I'm going to pray a born-again prayer, a prayer that starts a journey with God. It's not a magic prayer. It's a prayer that just has to come from your heart. And if you're here today and just say, Pastor Tim, when you pray that born-again prayer, God has been so patient with me. God has been so kind with me. But today, I'm throwing aside my letter jacket, my high school stats, my college stats, my career stats, and I'm going, God, I need you. You've been waiting so patiently on that fence. And now today I'm asking you, come in and change me from the inside out. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Tim, when you pray that born again prayer, I want to be part of it. Would you put me in that prayer right now? I, I want... I want God in my life. I want to start a journey today. Some of you are going, but I'm not perfect. Here's the good news. Amen. Perfect people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. That can happen right now. And if you're here, annex, online, in this building, and say, please, Pastor Tim, put me in that prayer. Without any hesitation, just hold your hand up high. Just say, put me in that prayer. Hold it up high. Hold it up as high as you can. I want to make sure I see every hand that's up. Keep them up. I want to start over here. Got you, got you, got you. See you there, 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 there. Over there, 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 there. Thank you. All over there. Got you in the back there, in the back. All in the balcony. Thank you, thank you, thank you over there. That's fantastic. Now listen, if you're online, just type the word decided and join with us. Annex, keep your hand up. We're so excited. Now here we go. I want you to pray this with me out loud. Would you pray this with me right now? Come on, everybody. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for it. You faced hell for me so I wouldn't have to go. You rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to be born again. Come on, I say this loud. God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. The Bible is my guide. And heaven is my home. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. Hallelujah. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this message. And be sure to subscribe so you can receive new messages each week. Visit tsc.nyc for all the latest info on how you can stay connected. Also, don't forget that you can follow us on social media on all major platforms at Times Square Church. Thanks for tuning in today. Have a great week.